Zimmer's Netter, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Nailers Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about educational books, why we love them, and how we use them in our classrooms. With guest authors, publishers, podcasters, and of course, teachers. Welcome to another Nailers Natter. Uh, just before we get into the podcast and today's guest, I need to do a little bit of a preamble because we're going to be talking about behaviour today. Um, as you know, I set the podcast in 2019 and the premise of the podcast was evidence and research-based strategies. Um, and lots of people who've listened and people I've bumped into at conferences um, have described me perhaps more in what could be described as the traditional camp and traditional teaching methods, probably because I'm just old. That's probably why people are saying that. But uh, if you look at the guest list of people we've had on, hopefully we've had a full breadth and diversity of guests, but I have spoken to lots of people who I am huge fans of in around behaviour. So people like Tom Bennett, Sam Strickland, Doug Lamov. But, you know, around sort of 2020, my road to Damascus moment, if you like, my conversations with other people and other ways of looking at behavior was when I had a conversation with Paul Dix. Now, people who are listening to this podcast may well be surprised to know that the episode with Paul is by far and away, it's got double the amount of the second most listened to podcast. So it's into huge thousands and thousands of of listeners. So obviously people who listen to this are interested in the full spectrum of opinions on behaviour. Now, Paul was good enough to let me on to Teacher Hug Radio and allow me to speak to lots of other experts with in the field of behaviour for lots of different viewpoints. Uh, and I can signpost some of these in uh, the show notes. I've had conversations with Paul, conversations with people like Mark Finnis, and today's guest, who we will come to in a moment. So this conversation, uh, we're recording this um, just towards the end of the May half term. So goodness knows when this is going to come out. But it's set a time following the pandemic where many schools are looking at more traditional behaviour resets to re-establish rules, norms and consequences. But this is also set in the context of plummeting attendance figures, increasing suspensions and I think most of us teachers would agree more challenging behaviours across the sector. So this host is for one rather confused and conflicted and is looking for help, advice and support from right across what can be a rather tribal teaching demographic especially with regard to behaviour. So with an open mind and allowing you to listen to fill in the gaps we're looking at having a conversation a second conversation I've had with Graham Chatterley. Graham welcome to Nailers Natter again. Hello. You had to sit through all that introduction there, Graham, didn't you? didn't say a word. You were Thanks very well behaved. Very fluent, very fluent. <laughs> so welcome, Graham. We're going to be talking about your book, which is Changing Perceptions, Deciphering the Language of Behaviour. Okay, let's get straight into it. And some of these questions are deliberately provocative, Graham, as you can see, just to get the conversation going. So first question, is unconditional positive regard about accepting and ignoring everything a young person does? Accepting, maybe. Um, ignoring absolutely not, um, and and again, you know, one of the conversations that I I regularly have with with lots of different people in lots of different settings, very regularly on social media and stuff is explanations are different to excuses, and you know everything that I'm I'm talking about in the book and and generally is all about trying to understand where that behaviour comes from and accepting that there is a reason for it. And we need to find that reason before we decide how we respond to it. And it may well be that consequences are, are absolutely needed, although we'll talk about later on 
the difference between logical consequences and punitive consequences, which I think is really important. But um, I think we've got to we've got into a situation where we've got these systems in place where behaviour A automatically equals consequence B, and I and I understand why it's, we're very busy and you know all these different things and and the systems make life easier for the majority and all of those different concepts but for certain young people if we are having a consequence that is unrelated to the actual behavior itself it doesn't give the young person the opportunity to repair what's happened and then we run the risk of adding more shame more damage to that child's self-esteem and actually making it more likely that that happens in the meantime so the unconditional positive regard is is that adult acceptance that there is a reason even though i don't know what it is why this has happened let's get everything calm and sorted out and then let's figure out where we go from there so yeah that that's that's my take on unconditional positive regard and and i still am yet and I've, I've said this many times, people don't believe me, I'm still yet to find a behaviour that I've come across, whatever level of that behaviour, where there wasn't a reason for it. I might not have known it at the time, but there was a reason. And very often, we've been barking up the wrong tree with how we've responded to it, and that to change that method. Thank you, Graham. Right, so th- this is difficult when I'm putting myself forward as the uh, the voice of all teachers, which for not for a minute, listener, am I claiming to be. However, I think across social media and across conversations that we're having in courses and conferences and staff rooms up and down the country, I think it's fair to say people are experiencing more uh, challenging and more difficult behaviours than possibly ever before. So you talk about it in the book. How do we practice empathy? So that kind of understanding of those behaviours when we're being abused or facing aggression. I think we've got to, again, we'll talk a little bit about oranges, origins of the, those behaviours in a minute and stuff. But I think I think it's a natural, it's a natural human thing to have that negativity bias, to take those behaviours personally, to look at them as work avoidance or, or something along those lines when actually there's very likely to be other other things that are driving those behaviours. There's also the fact that for a lot of those situations, the child might not necessarily be in control of those behaviours. And if they're not fully in control of those behaviours, then again, we've got to, we've got to have an open mind about how we, we respond to them. And it is, it, I think a lot of the time with adults in those situations, we we make decisions sometimes where we've got a situation where perhaps we're looking at well how does it look to the other young people if i if i if i let that go then that's going to um that that's going to therefore be a situation where they'll think it's okay to do that and then i'll have lots of repeat incidents of that behavior and and things along those lines if i don't deal with it right now then I'm showing weakness or or something like that. But actually what we've got in that situation is we've got to give it time for everything to calm down before we do the um, the, the, the response, the consequence, whatever we're doing afterwards. Because a lot of the time we're trying to we're trying to challenge children that are in either a a, a survival part of the brain 
in which case they're not managing language or anything at that point in time or they're in a very emotional state where they're being driven by outrage or unfairness or injustice or something like that and if we therefore challenge them at that point in time it's just going to all blow up so we've got to wait wait until all is calm before we try to address these behaviors which again is very difficult in a busy classroom and i and i totally i totally get that um but it's counterproductive if they're not able to process what we're doing with them at that point in time and what what all this book is about and and there will be people that read it and they'll people think oh yeah well it's you know you're 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 letting letting things go and you're not not tackling the, it's actually the very much the opposite of that what i want people to do is to do that intervention earlier before we get to the aggression and the abuse and the um the the either emotional survival responses i want us to be managing the early early signs that something's wrong the initial signs of of, of distress for those young people when we've still got that logical rational part of the brain working so that we can communicate with them at that point um and, and again that sometimes gets lost in the translation i think sometimes and it is an incredibly difficult thing to do when you've got 29 other children and when you've got um the 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 low level things that that we could ignore the temptation is to ignore them because it's going to stop the flow and all those different things but actually that makes your life much harder sometimes absolutely and we'll come to some stuff later on graham but the one thing that people will not be able to say is that the book is not well researched and really in detail and very well written i mean i've, I've obviously got a copy this week i've not had a chance to get through it all yet but if people are going to disagree and that's great you know disagree agreeably as uh, they say on the rest is politics you know that's perfectly acceptable but at least do people the courtesy of reading the books first and actually looking at what people are saying because a lot of what you're saying there does stem from lots of research, does stem from lots of experience, does stem from lots of expertise across that sector. So actually take the time to read the book and actually get into that before you start throwing um, opinions around on the, on social media. Right. Okay. The next one. So you talk in the, in the, one of the first chapters about recipes. I like that at the end of every chapter, Graham, that you've got these, these recipes and these kind of summaries at the end of each chapter, really helpful. So tell us about your recipe for understanding the origins of those challenging behaviors. So I, I do, uh, I mean, obviously I've, I've worked with a lot of challenging behavior for a long time. De-escalation has been sort of my bread and butter for, for a very long time. And when we're talking about de-escalation, the, the, the main thing is that a lot of the time, as, I, as I've just touched on, the child hasn't got the part of the brain working at that point in time that will respond to um rational thought and logic and all of those different things so if we don't know what is driving the behavior and what part of the brain they're using at that point in time then how do we communicate with the young person so i've played around with this for, for a long time and for me there are three origin points of, of that behavior all linked to the different bits of the brain and, and things along those lines and you'll have some young people who you know adults will describe them as they just kick off they just it just comes out of nowhere they just they just um l lose control or, or go naught to 60 in the blink of an eye or you've seen all of the, these different descriptions of of them and those are 
survival responses for those young people led by that part of the, the brain. And, and often for our young people with an underdeveloped frontal cortex, which is the front part of the brain, who have got, you know, maybe that's a result of trauma, maybe ADHD, something like that. Uh, much younger children, that part of the brain hasn't developed as well. So it's much easier to switch off. It's much harder to to switch on. So you're going to get those impulsive responses from those young people. So if that's the case, that child isn't in control of that behavior and they probably don't even remember it. So if we are going to take a punitive approach towards a behavior that they don't um, they don't have any control of and they don't even remember, we, we're going to have a, a disconnect there in, in that respect. So we've got to be aware of the young people that that's what we're getting and that could come in the form of of um, a, a fight, flight, freeze response that, that, we'll, that we'll talk about as we go through. Then there are those young people where it's much more of an emotional response. And it's it's one adults can relate to because you'll, you see loads of different analogies linked to it. You know, the, at the, um, the, the stress sponge, the stress bucket, the iceberg, and that idea that, there are lots of feelings bubbling under the surface that build and build and build and then they overflow. And I know we're going to talk about the the, the behaviour train line, the overwhelmed train line in, in, in a bit. But we've all been in that situation where frustration has led to feelings of anger and we're a bit annoyed and we're starting to get a bit snappy. And then we, we, we would, as a natural consequence there, end up at aggressive or challenging behaviour. But we as adults have the tools to make sure that we don't get to that aggressive behavior. You know, we've all been in that situation at home where things have started. To, and then rather than start the row, we go, no, right, that's it. I'm going to go walk the dog. I'm going to gym. I'm going to do something about it. We have those tools to be able to self-regulate in those moments because at some point in our lives, somebody has co-regulated us. And that was probably uh, our, our parents or carers when we were younger. It may have been that it's been uh, adults in schools that have done it later on, but somebody's given us those tools and we can we can work those emotional responses to be able to calm them down. And then there's the third one, which is the one that often gets children into lots of trouble, one that I'm sure will interest you, and it's the long-term survival strategy that children will develop to avoid being in those situations which get them into trouble. So if I'm a young person that goes into a classroom and gets overwhelmed by the work, by the uh, the environment, by the social situations, um, then when I'm younger, I often lose control in that situation and then I get removed from that class and, and all those things happen. As I get older, as my frontal cortex development develops a bit more, I will be able to find other strategies that will stop me losing control. But I still am overwhelmed. I'm still a bit scared in that classroom. So I still want to get out of it. So how do I get out of it? Well, I can get out of it by refusing to work. I can get out of it by refusing to attend. I can get out of it by misbehaving and then they'll send me out. And these become long-term survival strategies that children will develop, which often get labeled as um choosing to misbehave which is a phrase i often um have lots of good conversations about but also persistent disruptive behavior which is as you know the number one reason for exclusion from 
secondary education and also something that probably you encounter on a very, very regular basis. But I think if we look at it slightly differently and we look at those things as long-term survival rather than avoid uh, choosing to misbehave, I think, again, we take it takes us back to empathy and how we see the, the behaviour. So, um, yeah, that that's where I'm going with all of those different bits. It's so interesting, Graham. I'm just thinking, just writing some notes while you were talking there. And I mean, we haven't scripted this part, listeners, so we may we may go off on a little bit of a tangent here. But when you're talking about those origins of challenging behaviour, the one or the two things that are really puzzling people of my generation or people that are teaching, you know, for a long time is what has happened to punctuality and attendance. I just I'm trying to unpick what it is about walking a corridor or sitting in a toilet cubicle for a full lesson that is more appealing. Now that sounds awful, doesn't it? Listeners going, well, obviously more appealing than my lesson, but you know, it pro- probably is my lesson. That's uh, not very appealing, but what, what's changed Graham? Because that wasn't necessarily a thing, you know, obviously bunking off lessons when I went to school was definitely a thing. If you thought you could, or you didn't particularly want to go to that, that was something that you do, but you'd probably go and sit on the field, get caught, come back in and you wouldn't do it the next day. But there's some pe- some students now that are really struggling and you were kind of alluding to it there to attend regularly and when they do attend struggling to go to lessons on time so what's the origins do you think of those behaviors and i appreciate i I put you on the spot for that one no i know i i think certainly what i'm what i'm seeing is i'm seeing a a huge post-covid impact and and again attendance wise you know we we do give children conflicting messages in a way you know in in that we we tell them how important it is that they're in school and that they have to be there and, and all those different things. It's going to affect your grades and all those different. But then we've had, a, from a child's perspective, we've decided to shut the schools and we've decided to do all this stuff and stuff. So so there's, there's that. There's also, you know, if we're, if we're saying how important it is in class, then why am I in isolation then and, and things along those lines and exclusions. And, and all, so there's all those things under the surface. But for me, uh, it comes back to... Uh, the, the social discipline window um, and, and that again is, is something from a guy called Ted Ted Watchall um, and then it was adapted by Mark Finnis who I know you've had have had on uh, and it's Mark four ways uh, and he talks about the the, the 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 not not working not working with the children it's the expectations versus or challenge versus levels of support and I think we've got children that for whatever reason have been a bit more in that not box, you know, and they've been, I think the big difference between now and many years ago on, on top of COVID and everything else is the, the rise of technology. We've got children who are just being given a piece of technology to occupy them and that becomes problematic. You know, the instant gratification attached to that, the lack of other things, but we're having more of that. And then what's happening is those young people are coming into schools and they can't manage the stress of the environment because of all those factors. So what is the solution for us as, as adults to manage those situations where the child can't handle the stress of the the environment, the work, the other children, all those different things? And the temptation is, and certainly what I often see in primary settings and also in a lot of specialist settings, is we want to take those stresses away from those young people. So we insulate the child from that stress and we maybe remove them from the classroom and we work one-to-one with them, we do all those different things, provide really high levels of support, but we aren't actually putting any expectations on them. And 
that's all right as a starting point, but then that's not going to help them longer term because stress is part of life and we need to be teaching those young people to to manage stress. So I often talk about the journey for, for certainly primary settings is to take them from that four box and move them up into the with box. So we are bringing the expectations in so we can control their exposure to the stress and be a lot more gradual about it. I think what's always happened in secondary schools is they've existed in the two box. So the expectations are higher, but the levels of support can't be as high because of the sheer number of how many children you've got and how many are going into each class. And what you've always had is you've had that pastoral team that would pick up that 5% of children that were struggling and they bridged them back over to that that with box. And I think that system worked for, for a long time. I think there's two issues that we've got after COVID. The main one being that well, one of them being the pastoral team is smaller um, in a lot of situations with cuts and things along those lines. But also that 5% of children that have always struggled after COVID, I think is more 10, 15, even 20% of children. And it's overwhelming the, the, the numbers. And so there aren't enough of those bridges back, which is therefore leaving children floundering. And they're floundering and they're not, you know, we... we those who were bunking up, they'd have got caught before because there was there weren't there weren't the numbers. But now there's the numbers. There's more. There's just less people to get them in. I think is part of the issue that we've got. I think the other side of it is, I think sometimes, again, the adult response is, I'm starting to lose control of this situation. I need to exert more control in the environment. So. It's always been in that two box, but now it's right in the top left-hand corner of that two box, and it's even more high expectations with 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 possibly less support and less leeway and more zero tolerance and all of those different things. And so there's just still there's even more children floundering in there. So I mean, I hope that makes it makes sense. But that that's the landscape that I'm seeing in all the schools that I'm going into at the at the moment, um, and I think what what would benefit those secondary environments if they could do it would be to just shift a bit more to the center um obviously and more pastoral staff as well um would be a benefit but that's not the only way to solve it um as we'll talk about as we go yeah it does make a lot of sense graham and this is probably i say this every time and then when i listen back on the edit i think do i need to cut that or do i not would it be would it be beneficial occasionally for me to be slightly more controversial i don't know so uh, here we go and then we'll see whether we put it in or not but i think with you know these behavior resets and this kind of i mean it's always called warm strict isn't it so these kind of rules norms consequences etc but take a look around any cpd session or staff briefing that you deliver and look at the staff behavior during that CPD session. So you're asking students to do six hours where you sit up, track the speaker, ask, answer questions, respect each other. And on the whole, they do it really, really well. You go to a staff meeting or a staff briefing or a staff CPD session after school at any school, any time. This is no reflection on anywhere that I've worked particularly because um, when I'm leading it, you know, I try, I try and lead it like I lead the classroom. So they, they will be listening. <laughs> I'm joking. But they're on phones. They're on laptops occasionally talking to someone next to them you think it's just human nature that's not a criticism of teachers particularly that's just it's very very difficult to 100 percent concentrate on somebody speaking to you for 
any number of hours in a day. And I think kids do it remarkably well, don't they? But it does make sense what you're saying there in terms of, you know, opting out of it or have gone past the point where you can possibly cope in this environment. But what they've also seen, and you're right again, Graham, is that this was something that you had to do. So, you know, you, you go back in time and think, right, Victorian Britain, everyone went to church, for example. That's a very bad example. But it kind of is expected. It was a norm. It was what people did. And then suddenly it was like, we don't have to do that. And then it's declined and dropped off. And that's a ridiculous example. But you look at, you know, school. Well, it is optional now, isn't it? It's, you've taken it away and it's not something that you absolutely have to do. So if I wake up in the morning, I think, well, that's going to be difficult. I don't have to do it. And I'm worried about what the, what the implications for that are going to be in the, in the long term. I think I think there might be a bit of that. I think I think I think phones is really interesting as well. You know, it, it's kind of it's it's like people want to close Pandora's box. Mm. You know, we can we can talk and be waxing lyrical about fifty years ago and and what it was. You know, I, I don't think it was as good as people are making it out to be and stuff like that. But phones didn't exist, and and so to try and go back to a time when something didn't exist, it it doesn't. You know, it's like trying to say, "Oh, we're not going to, we're not, we're not going to, we're still doing all this. Everything is still handwritten and and things. Are, you know, how many jobs now do you do you need to do handwrite and all those different things? You know, yes, to a de- lower degree, but we we put all that focus on it. We put all this focus on learning facts and and things on when you've just got Google at your fingertips and it." it we're trying to cling on to something that needs to that needs to evolve and and stuff but you know on on the phone if i if i was a child now and i and i you know my teenage brain and i'm designed as a teenager to think that you know a, a lot of adults are stupid and i know best and and all those different things and then i'm looking for reasons to to think oh that's a bit hypocritical or something along those lines and we've We've had COVID and we've told children that the devices are absolutely crucial to their learning. And then they've come back to school and we're telling children that those devices are detrimental to their learning. Now, now both, are, both are right, but do we explain that to the children? In the, or do we just say, no, we're banning those? Uh, and again, I think we need to... We, we, there's a lot of telling... As opposed to teaching, I think sometimes with our with our young people, and um, you know, you're dead right what you say about adults in training sessions, and you know, I will be sitting down, and they will be on the phones or checking their emails. I hand out six or seven pens at the start of every single session, you know, which I know children are getting into trouble for, and things like. But adults are horrific for it. The fidgeting, the moving around, and, and I, which I I encourage in my session because those chairs are not comfy at the best of them and we do sit children on plastic chairs in classrooms that are dreadful to sit on uh, and all of those different things I think we've just got to I don't know be a bit more human about it I think you know and, and things along those lines and 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 recognize that every young person is different and stop trying to make them all the same because it's that one size fits all that's causing so many of these issues that we've that we've got and the thing is, you, you look at the young people in classrooms and, you know, I had a fantastic conversation. You know, I did, I did the, the teacher radio show for, for, for a very long time and, and we spoke to some absolutely phenomenal people. But it was a lot of the things that I, I already had a decent knowledge of. It was a conversation with Jane Green um, about hypermobility 
and children in physical discomfort and pain in classroom that blew my mind because I think if if adults knew that there were probably three of 30 children in every classroom that were in physical discomfort trying to sit still, would that give us a bit more empathy and would we be more supportive? But if those three are uncomfortable and start to lose control, start to fidget and then bump into the next person and they then bump, they, they then get annoyed and say so and then they do and that pinball effect around the classroom is something that you will you will no doubt see all the time. If we could stop that first one by being a bit more getting in there early and supporting the needs of that young person in the first place, we might not have the knock on effects that go around the classroom which might make those classrooms a lot better as well. So there are, it's all plate spinning stuff. You know, that's, that's all, that's all educators are doing at the moment is just trying how best they can manage the, the plate spinning exercises that they're doing. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot in that. I, I do wonder where it's, uh, where we're next heading on the kind of educational sort of roller coaster and the cycle of, you know, particular strategies, particular ways of doing things. I remember who was it I spoke to, uh, Mark McCourt about you know the educational cycles that go around and around. And actually, mm-hmm. when you talk about fifty years ago, I mean, I, I wasn't at school fifty years ago, probably 35, 40 years ago. But it actually start it's starting to look more like that now. It's starting to look more like right. Well, if you're academic and you're achieving well and you're getting on nicely, then fine. School is for you, and school's going well. If you're not, then you know leaving at fourteen. Obviously, you can't do that now, but. Mm-hmm you're opting out at 14 and you're thinking, well, it's not really for me. I'm not attending. It is, it is looking quite similar to that. The only benefit of, um, well, obviously I've agreed with Douglas Moff about banning phones because I wish I could ban mine some of the time, you know, to get myself off it. But I think the, the only benefit of it at the moment is the novelty factor, Graham. So when you're sat in, a, you're in a classroom, it's the only time when kids have not got access to the phone. And actually I'm seeing in, in a way that I've, I've given you two very bad analogies so far. It's because I'm on holiday and I'm all excited. But, you know, you look at the vinyl revivals and things like that. It, it, those kind of things have come back in because it's different to streaming and you can't just access any song that you want. So actually me banging on for 20 minutes about something in, in biology is actually probably the only time that you sit focused listening to somebody talking about something and you actually they're actually quite interested in that. But I'm not sure that helps in any way talking about your book, Graham. So I'm going to stop uh, lapsing okay, into no. personal anecdotes and we'll cut all that. Right. So people who are going to be buying your book, Graham, I'm just reminded for listeners, so it's Changing Perceptions, deciphering the language of behavior uh, can you give us some examples for perhaps newer teachers or teachers that are you know this time of year perhaps picking up a new class what kind of short-term survival responses are there for teachers in classrooms where they are facing more challenging behavior um well again the the, the main thing for me in terms of of I, I do a lot of stuff around individual plans for for the young people, uh, and one of the one of the, the messages that comes out of initial teacher education is ignoring low level behaviour, and 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 I totally understand the the premise of it and why why we have it and the idea that you know if if we tried to deal with every single bit of low level behaviour, that's literally that's all we'd ever be doing. You know, I, I taught year four. I remember it very, very well in my my NQT year. I know exactly um, what it was like. You're trying to you're trying to plat fog a lot of the time in that situation. So I get the premise of ignoring low level behaviour. However, for some of the young people in that classroom who don't have the ability to self regulate, who don't have that development of their frontal cortex, etc., ignoring them at low level behaviour is paving the way for them to go to that crisis style behavior that, that has then just destroyed 
your entire lesson. So for those two or three children in that classroom, it's absolutely critical that we intervene early. Now, if you have got the luxury of a, of a teaching assistant in that classroom with you, which I know you guys often don't have, then, you know, they are the ones that you could use to, to do this. If you're on your own, it's a decision making uh, for, for you to, to, to go down. But knowing which children need that support, which children don't have that ability to self-regulate, those are the ones where you're going to need to step in. And so the example I often give is I've got a class of 30 children in front of me and I'm teaching a lesson. It's flowing beautifully. And out of the corner of my eye, I see Tina go to, to, to outside of a window of tolerance, which we can talk about later, and starts just dangling an arm, dangling a leg, starting to wobble a little bit, signs that she's not quite right, initial signs that something's up. Now, is it fair for me? Well, what, what do I know about what do I know about Tina? Well, I know actually that Tina's got the ability to self-regulate. So she will she will be off task for a minute. And then she'll have a minute and she'll sort herself out and then she'll get back on task. And I know that's what she does because Tina is one of the majority of children that can do that within my classroom. So I don't need to do anything with Tina. I can ignore that low-level behavior. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see I see Jamie. And Jamie goes to, to, to that early signs of, of something being up. He's, he's very fidgety in his chair. Um, he, he's very distracted. He's more red in the face. And... And I think, what do I know about Jamie? Well, I know about Jamie that if if I ignore him at stage one, then the chances are he's then going to get up out of his chair. He's going to start walking around the classroom. He's going to poke and prod other children. He's going to start talking over me and all those different. So should I ignore him at stage one when he's just a bit wobbly? Uh, no, I shouldn't. But is it fair on the 29 other children for me to step in with Jamie in that moment? You know, is that, that's going to stop the flow and all those. So, no, it's not fair. So I'm going to I'm going to leave Jamie. I'm going to hope for the best. And now I'm having to stop my lesson because Jamie's walking around the class and he's shouting over me and he's doing and I've had to call for SLT and somebody's got to come and try and remove Jamie from it. But then Jamie's refused to leave. Um, he's given them a right gobful. And I, I look down at my watch and I've lost half an hour and everybody's getting a really good show, but nobody's doing any learning. Now, which of those had the bigger impact on the the, the the other 29? Because if I'd gone over to Jay, if I'd just given everybody a quick activity to do or something like that, gone over, had a chat with him, used the distraction, given him a little job to do, um, maybe done something sensory regulation, maybe asked him to go and see one of the pastoral staff or something like that, that would have took me five minutes and then I could have got back onto the learning with everybody. As it is, I've now lost half an hour and the whole lesson's gone out the window. So it's that it's that decision-making that, that I think is so key, but it's knowing your individuals and which ones need that level of support. Because there will only be, there'll be less than a handful in the class that have that level of need. The rest of them, you'll be able to ignore that low-level behavior. It's making those, those choices effectively in those situations. But it is, and, and, and again, I think it's very hard for, for a lot of, of, of adults because you're constantly on the clock, you're constantly up against it, you're getting this narrative that you've got to do all this learning and, and stuff like that and, and you're asking somebody to be confident enough to maybe sacrifice five minutes to get a good 
45 minutes of learning as opposed to trying to get the whole 50 minutes but actually you lose the 50 so so it's it's again we're back to plate spinning again all the time but you can kind of see where it's coming from um from that respect hopefully yeah, no, I'm nodding along with some of that. I mean, that is where technology is pretty good because a lot of schools are going to have systems now, aren't they, that take the register, for example, and put on you know, merits and beer points, whatever else. But they'll also probably have a send section on there. They'll have your, your one-page profiles. They'll have that information there that you can discreetly, you know, while an activity is going on. Obviously, you know, for, so I think I always think of teachers that teach in secondary schools music or art. They teach everybody across the board. So it's very difficult to be able to get that kind of relationship with every single student that you teach across all year groups, but that, that technology does help that. And, you know, you've given some really good examples there of kind of methods of de-escalation, but also, you know, that, that example that we gave before, if I was in a CPD session and I'm struggling a little bit because, you know, I've got received an email that I need to do something about, whereas if I go and have a quick walk, a two minute, you know, visit to the toilet, get myself back into the room and then come back in, that's really going to help me, isn't it? And that's another thing as well, Graham, isn't it? A lot of schools are stopping people from going to the toilet. And I just yeah. think, again, I'm probably going to have to cut most of this podcast. But I think I've got a son and a daughter. If they ask to go to the toilet, I really would like them to go to the toilet, please. You know, and I look at how many times they go to the toilet during the day on half term. It's, you know, it's not, it's not abnormal or anything. I don't need to visit the doctors particularly with them. But it's certainly more than like break, lunch and the end of the day. They might need to go more than that. But we're, we're stopping people being able to do that. So what you're talking about there is, a method of right go and take this note to the office if you call it the toilet on the way back great when you come back in you're probably less likely to be swinging on the chair and more likely to be engaged in the learning but the, but the walking provides rhythm breathing all of those all those things we need to help us regulate ourselves and and i know i know we're teachers so we never get the chance to go to the toilet but there will be times in your life when you've gone to the toilet where you didn't need the toilet you just wanted to go and have a minute to yourself hiding somewhere usually when you've got small children at home isn't it you know um but but yeah you just need to go and take a few deep breaths give your head a wobble and then and then come back and and again we don't let children do this for fear of the the one that doesn't come back because you know there might be one that doesn't come back but there'll be over the course of the week there'll be 50 that do and 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 again we because of that you know that 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 mindset that we often have as adults we focus on that one rather than the other the other young people so it, it's just and 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 it is and there's no right or wrong answer on this and this is what this is what bothers me about a lot of the other approaches to they 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 are offering this one size fits all this will work for all your children there is nothing that works for all the children we have to we have to adapt there's no magic wand in behavior at all because everybody's experiences are completely different. Um, personalities are different. Additional needs are different. So, so we can't have a one size fits all. Um, and we do have to have the systems. I'm not, I'm not talking about getting rid of systems completely. But if the systems aren't working for some of those young people, then we have to have some flexibility um, if we're going to be inclusive in that in that that environment. Because otherwise, what we end up with is what we've got at the moment, and that is far 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 too many children out of school without without places um and that's only going in one direction um unfortunately at the moment no you're right right so a couple of questions that i did draft previously but i think i, I listened back last night graham to our last one um just because i'd like to do my preparation listening you know i like to make sure that and we did address uh, the behavior is communication quite 
a lot in the last one. So I'm going to just skip over that one. And if listeners are interested in that one, I think Graham answers it really well in the previous podcast. So we'll move on to something that we're picking up talking about there. So is prevention better than cure? And can you tell us a little bit about this window of tolerance that you've alluded to previously in the last couple of answers? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it follows on really nicely from the last the last question, doesn't it, really? Um, I, mean, I mean, the window, to- and I can't off the top of my head remember who who it's for. Um, so apologies for that. Um, but it's, it's, I think it's a nice concept um, to, to be using. And it runs, you know, I've, I've, my background has been as a team teach um, tutor and team teach talks about the stages of a crisis um, and, and things. And I use that model quite a lot, but I think the windows of tolerance is even better. So you'll have those young people and everybody's window is a different shape and size. But when they are in that window of tolerance, that's when the frontal cortex is working. That's when language, rational thought, logic, and most importantly, learning takes place is when they're in that window of, of tolerance. So there's a lot there's a lot of benefits for us to have them there at all times um, within school. Now, to stay in it at all times is going to be difficult for, for all of us. We all We all have moments during the day where we're not quite at it. That would be described as as dangling an arm, dangling a leg outside of that window, and and that's the early initial signs that I've just been talking about. So when when you see that young person start to to, to hang an arm, hang a leg, that's when the intervention needs to come, because when we're at that point, we have so many options available to us: distraction, diversion, uh, limited choices take up time, um, the, the list of strategies that we've got available to us at that point is as long as you're arm. Once they step out of that window of tolerance, and that might be into a situation where they are um, hyper aroused, you know, which again is, is your fight and flight stuff where they're, they're very animated, they're, they're, they are moving around, they are... Um, being disruptive they're bothering others all of those different things then that is obviously going to take up a lot more of our time and a lot harder to get back from or they go the other way and they just shut down they refuse to answer questions they refuse to engage they they down tools and and all of those different which again is very difficult to, to manage but both of those things are much harder to manage than the child that's dangling that arm or that leg in that situation so that is a position where it's going to take us some time to get them back in when they're just dangling, it's easy to get them back in. When they get to crisis point and they are at the other end of the corridor and their window's miles away, that's when you know we've got a hell of a lot of work on our hands. And um, again, it's a statistic I heard, but I think I left it out of the book because I can't. You know, when you've come across something and you cannot find it for the love nor money where it got where it came from, but the the the, the you know talk about lost learning time. You have a young person that goes to crisis; it takes you an hour and 40 minutes on average to get that young person back inside their window of tolerance. So you'll have had those young people that it's literally been all morning trying to trying to get them back. That's a huge amount of lost learning time. It's a huge impact on the other young people that have been involved in that situation. It's huge on staff resources. So we need to be avoiding that at all, all costs. And the easy option is always, well, the big behaviours come with that, exclude that young person um that's not the answer 
Um, that's a that's a short term um, way of looking at things, and and that's passing the problem on somewhere else. We've got to be looking at how do we prevent rather than how do we react, and and that's where I think the window of tolerance is is really really useful. And and you know that's the that's the escalations. It's obviously exactly the same coming down the other side. And again, one of the problems that we often that I often encounter is that we don't give children enough time after an incident to come back down and even if even if it's only they're just outside and it's been a bit of work refusal or something like that that's happened we've got to recognize they're still not in that window of tolerance when we try to address that behavior because if we try and address it while they're still outside of the window we don't have logic we don't have rational thought thinking and we don't have language so the child is being driven by other things and we can't actually get them to engage with us in that point in time. We've got to get them back in the window before we start the conversation, before we talk about consequences, before we talk about next steps, before we do emotion coaching, whatever it is we do afterwards, we can only do it if they're in their window. And that, again, is, uh, I think it's a use, when I use it, it's quite a useful concept um, for, for people to to get an idea around it. And, and in the book, there is, there is a sort of a pro forma for a for that one of those one page plans as well um, that 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 can be quite useful at the back because um, because a lot of the book you know when we had the conversations when we with the publishers and things along those lines was it's it's a lots and lots of theory uh, we need more practical practical stuff practical advice the practical advice comes after we've got the solid theory because trying to do one without the other doesn't work and that you know that's the that's the thing and as someone who's written a book graham that i never ever mention um on the podcast uh, except for every single week desperately desperately trying to flog his book um it's really well put together so i mean that particular chapter that you're talking about there with the graphics really complement and supplement what you're talking about there don't they because it's very you know you're describing it really well there but when you look at some of the figures you know the shame loop and obviously you've talked about uh, the mark finnis uh, social discipline window but i think it really helps and i know how hard that is like i said to put together in a book and to get publishers to make sure it goes in the right place and i know all about that so you know you know kudos to you for that it's really worked very well right we're, we're talking we're getting i tell you what listener we've got through 45 minutes i've not even noticed so far this is this is great we we'll love to talk about behavior so we won't we, we never go over the hour graham so the pressure's on That's we've got well, to try and go. uh, make sure we're getting under the hour so let's talk about consequences and the preamble to this part is i know from conversation i visited quite a lot of schools this year um for various different reasons mpqhs etc etc and we've got a lot of detentions going on and a lot of those detentions seem to be quite full most evenings but yet we're still as a sector not those schools in particular but as a sector experiencing more problematic behaviors so are consequences working? What kind of consequences? Because you've, you've alluded to the fact that consequences are necessary both you know, in society and in schools. But do they teach a better way? And what's your suggestion around the use of consequences? I, I think, again, it's consistency is the thing that keeps coming up, doesn't it, all the time and stuff. And, and, and I, I regularly bang on and I, and, I, and I pinch it off David Whitaker. I talk about relentless consistency. But relentless consistency that there will be a consequence does not mean it has to always be the same consequence uh, and when it's actually embedded within a school the children know you will be expected to make amends for what's happened 
unfortunately, what we're doing is we're having the same behaviours get the same consequences repeatedly, and they don't do anything to change the behaviours, and that's because we're not we're not addressing the real issues there. So children will make behavioural mistakes, um, and whether that is controlled, you know, whether that is a you know whether that's a, a, a long term survival strategy, whether that's an emotional response, whether that's a survival, they've still made that behavioural mistake. We have to fix it. Uh, and so what I want is a real life approach to doing that and teaching behavior rather than a criminal justice system approach where, you know, that it's very systems based. And, and I think we're much more in that camp in education, it seems to me at this point in time, because it's behavior A equals consequence B. And often it is, it's detentions. Uh, and often it's very punitive. And so I don't have an issue with detention. I have an issue with how are we using that detention? Because if that detention is being used to, you know, we take that time off that young person and we, we make sure they're regulated and then we, we do some uh, emotional literacy work, or emotion coaching with them. We talk through the incident. We separate the feelings from the behaviours. We come up with a plan for how do we fix this, and then we we find a way to 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 to, to fix it and make amends. Then I think that's a very good use of a detention. If we're sitting that child in silence, if we're facing the wall, if we're doing a worksheet that's unrelated, if it's a centralised detention that is just everybody doing the same thing, then there's no actual teaching going on in that situation. And and what we actually are probably going to do if, is, 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 is add to those cycles of the... Because let's be honest, it's the same children in those detentions over and over and over. It's the same children in isolation over and over and over again. So what are we actually teaching them? Well, what we're teaching them is you do the behaviour, you pay the price. And that just feeds that young person's shame because I've done this I'm because I'm bad people expect me to be bad I'll get my consequence and then I'll go back to being bad again tomorrow and this is my life and this is what I'll keep doing now we should be looking to break that cycle and making a behavioral mistake is is something that we will do in real life all the time um now if we give the young person the opportunity to counteract that and make amends for it then we cancel that out and then it doesn't feed in to that young person's shame. You know, we've all done stuff at home, you know, and we, we make a behavioural mistake and we we have a, we, we say some horrible stuff and we lose our cool or something like that at home. We don't want to sit in our bedroom for half an hour and then we sit in silence and then when we come out, it's all fixed. That's not real life at all. We have to know how to make amends. We have to know how to fix it. We know have to know how to say that we're sorry. Um, sometimes... Maybe we don't don't say it. Maybe we show it. Maybe we we do something kind to make up for something unkind. Maybe we fix something that's broken, and and it's all that that we need to be doing with our young people. And yes, that does require more time, perhaps in the moment to to make up a a specific personalized consequence. But if we're doing detention again and again and again and again, accumulatively, we're spending far more time than actually if we did something to change the behaviour. So it's 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 one of those false economies that I often talk about in that respect. But, um, you know, 
how complicated does it need to be? How punitive does it mean? Again, it depends on the young person. I offer, I'm, I'm in, um, doing a lot of stuff with early years at the moment, which is quite, quite bizarre, but they're, they're having a real impact after COVID. And, and you'll have young people who, they have no idea how to make amends. They don't think that they can um, fix those problems. So that so they go into that shutdown and they, they refuse to do it and they say they can't do it and all those different. And, and actually, sometimes it needs to be adult-led. And sometimes we need to trick them into it. You know, the example I often give is a, a, a four-year-old has lashed out and hit their TA. Well, you know, we could have saying sorry and all those different things, but it's just something that they're told to do. So how do we actually fix it? Well, the child doesn't want to. Right, well, I'm going to go and make them a cup of tea. Can you pass me that sugar? They're now involved in that repair process. Next time they might stir it. Next time they put the tea bag in. Next time they come up with the idea of what to do for themselves and we grow it from there. Now, what we're teaching them is you do something wrong, you now lose your playtime and you're going to sit there and think about what you've done. And they don't know what they've done and they don't know how to stop it and all those different things and it doesn't work. So we need to be, you know, trying to, to do that. And, and another thing is the restorative practice. You know, lots of people are very anti the restorative practice. Um, and that's because it's not designed for, uh, sorry, because they get it mixed up with restorative justice. Restorative justice is not designed for schools. Restorative justice, where you sit the ad, the victim and the perpetrator down together to talk through the incident, that's done in the criminal justice system only when both parties are ready. You know, it can be months, if not years, before that takes place. We want to do it three o'clock the next day when we've got a resentful adult and a child that's not ready and then we wonder why it doesn't work. Restorative practice is that idea that no matter what happens, you will be expected to fix it and you know if we can embed that with our as a as a matter of course and yes it's going to be teething problems and stuff but it's a culture that's built over over a significant amount of time i mean the consequences situation graham as well i mean it's interesting that you bring that primary perspective as well because i always tend to lean towards secondary as i would do you know work in the secondary but you look at the number of students that are on detentions but you also look at that i think it's probably a tom bennett or a sam strickland phrase about certainty not severity mm. and you think well the, the certainty is gone as well because right there's multiple detentions for various different things right well i don't go so if if they don't go a student doesn't go there's probably not going to be much of a consequence to not going because the sheer number of them that are now deciding that perhaps it's not for me i'm not going to do this so you spend the whole of the next day trying to chase them up and put them into whatever it is an inclusion room or whatever euphemism you're using for an isolation room well, then they're not in for that day. So then it naturally gets kicked down the line because there's an, a load more behaviours happening the next day. So the, the students are quickly realising, well, I might get it and I might not get it. So therefore, it doesn't really matter anyway. So the system becomes, well, well let's have more detentions, more centralised detentions. And you, your rooms are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then there's no kind of follow-up. To you, th you think about behaviour during partial openings or partial closures. And the behaviour was arguably better because people were rightly concerned about the, the trans, transmission of the virus but also the behaviors that happened were, were you know the, the more severe ones were dealt with on the day because that's how you had to deal with it. you couldn't wait you had to deal with it in that bubble on that day and actually it ended up being you know 
whatever method you use to, to kind of talk about it afterwards ended up being better. I just worry now that schools are putting on more and more detentions, more and more evenings. And actually it's, it's a lottery as to whether you end up going to them or not. And even if you do, like you said, what's the purpose of it? Cause you're sitting with your mates for half an hour and then you're walking on with your mates anyway, because they're probably all in the detention as well. So it's becoming a bit of a social club. And, and there's, there's no witness there is a, at all because there's too many for the adult to actually have that there's no teaching there there's no teaching of what to do next or how to fix it or any of those any of those different things and then what's the end of that road well the end of that road is exclusion and you're excluding them for not going to classes which so you're giving them exactly what they wanted in the first place in 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 many examples as well so so yeah it's definitely flawed in in many respects and and you know what what I don't want people to think is that I don't recognize how difficult the job is. I I taught secondary um for for a few years um before I went into uh, into into behavior but then I've continued to work with secondary for a long time after that. I do recognize how difficult it, it, it is, but I think you do need to be borrowing some of the things that happen in primary, which is obviously a different environment, but there's some phenomenal practice there. And for me, again, and I think I talked about this on the last podcast, the one thing that 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 I think has been the biggest loss in secondary schools from when I think about what I was there, and, and let's be honest, the, the systems were very similar when I was there, but what we had was we had that form tutor that was like a school parent, if you like, that we could go to, that we could that would come and check in on us and things. And I feel like that's been lost because that's just that's just a period of the day to get the register done. And that having that central person, I think that the role of the form tutor, I think if we could get that back to what it used to be, I think that would help solve a lot of the issues that we've got at the moment. Um, that, that's such a great point and I saw that post on on Twitter I mean I don't engage too much on Twitter these days for various reasons uh, one being pretty much busy most of the time but there was a, a, tw- a kind of tweet around you know what's the point of form time and then I did a screenshot of a, a bit of the chapter that I wrote about form time because I'm a passionate advocate of form time but not for a particularly academic reason it's the one part of the day and, and i get what people are saying that disagree with me because they'll say well what's the point of coming if it's just you know inconsistent drifting through but the best heads of year and the best pastoral leads and the best form teachers are those that that take a kind of ownership of the people that are in their group they know them all those kind of reasonable adjustments that you were talking about earlier they're able to make them they know how to talk to their parents the carers you know to talk to their siblings whatever it might be they've got that relationship with them. And that form period, you're right, Graham, it's kind of shoehorning, right, let's do more intervention. Let's do more maths, more English. And ended up being, again, the ones that need it aren't there because they know that's what's coming, so they come in 20 minutes late. So the form time period, you're right, it's essential to kind of set. But I, think it's all, I think it's more than that as well. you know. And, and a lot of people ask, what's the difference between primary and secondary? Well, the biggest difference for me is the start of the day because children come into primary settings and they are they are met with a big smile. They're welcomed in. They're into class. They're chatting. They might have activities going on. You know, some will be doing some quiet time. Some will be doing a chat activity, etc., etc., etc. And what they get when they walk through the door is they're they're made to feel welcome, wanted, cared for, uh, listened to. They're regulated. Um, and, and I often talk about that being sort of 
you know, and it's a it's a word that you'd ne- you you very rarely hear in secondary and stuff like that. But it, and and that's it makes them children feel loved and wanted when they come into that setting. And if you ask any primary school or the vast majority, of them, what is your best academic learning lesson of the day? They will hands down say first lesson. Now, why is that? It's because we've spent that morning touching base, checking in, making them feel safe, all those different things. And so every young person has that frontal cortex working, which means that they're ready to learn straight away. After break, after lunch, you're playing whack-a-mole, trying to unpick all the things that have happened over over break and, and stuff. And a lot of the conversations I have in, in those primary environments are, well, actually, would you be better maybe repeating that morning process at the start of after break, after lunch, would that have a big impact on the lesson? And and again, I'm not. They can make that decision themselves. But the difference for me in secondaries is the first interaction of the day for a lot of our young people, especially if they're late, is why are you late? You know, where 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 are you? Where are your shoes? Pull your socks up. Pull your skirt down. You know, let, line up for a uniform check. It starts in a combative nature. And it sets off at the wrong place. And actually, your first lesson of the day, in a lot of cases, we haven't spent the time to regulate that young person, make them feel wanted and cared for and all those different. And so we're battling to try and get them into learning a lot of the time. And and we're being very stereotypical here. It's not everywhere, but this is, you know, these are the common things that I often I often see. And it was it was quite funny actually. I did a um I did a like a, a conference at Nottingham College. And I was talking about this, and there was some grumbling in the back row, in, in the, and and I was like, "What? What's? 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 And and one of the one of the teachers went, "They do that to us." And I was like, "What do you mean?" She said, well, we come in in the morning, and immediately the security guard goes to us, "Where's your lanyard?" And it really annoys us straight away, and then we're annoyed, and then we're passing that way to the children. Where's your? And everybody's annoyed, and and it's just not the place to start learning from. And and if we could just have that more positive start, again, you know, there's going to be the odd one that tries it here and there, but the majority will drag them in the right direction rather than the other way around, you know, in a, in a lot of circumstances. And that's so good, Graham, because, I mean, I can't remember if it was you or Mark or Dave Whitaker or Paul that suggested, you know, speaking to, to kids on the way in. So we've, I mean, I'll, I'll give a positive for what kind of things we do. So we're on the gates every morning now. We have different gates for different year groups and staff on the gates. And actually the uniform check or anything else, which we do do, doesn't take place until you've got into school. So we do a whole school assembly kind of line up on it because we've got big facilities at the back. So we've got a platform and the head addresses and we do the, you know, the, the checks there. But coming in through the gate, it's the opportunity to say good morning. And initially when we started this, it must be probably COVID times or maybe before, it was a kind of grumble like, you know, morning, oh yeah, you know, or just blanked. And now I can say hand on heart that that nearly everybody that walks through the gates in the morning, it's morning, sir, morning, how are you? That's it, you know, and a bit, even a bit of, you know, joking and laughing and things like that. And it, it makes such a difference to your morning. So you're actually looking forward to that, aren't you? Even when it's freezing cold and I'm stood there with a flat cap on, about three coats on, but you're saying good morning, it makes a huge, huge difference. And then you're right, it makes you feel better if your first interaction is positive in the day. It's it's the only thing both sides, you know, your trags, trads and progs and all those different. It's the only thing everybody can agree of that we need to meet and greet our children. It's just a disagreement in how we go about doing it. But you know that good morning, that high five, that fist bump, that 
you know, pattern of back, you know, all of those things, you know, they're, 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 they're that cultural capital that you get with those young people that, you know, they're worth the weight in gold. Um, and, and I think we could utilize them more. We could indeed. Right, Graham. We, we, well, I tell you what, listener, we, I always say that we leave the listener wanting more to read to the book. We've only got through about half the questions we were supposed to talk about on the book. So just a reminder for listeners, the book is Changing Perceptions, Deciphering the Language of Behaviour. So, Graham, tell us a little bit about um, anything that you're going to be doing. I know you're doing loads of stuff up and in the country, aren't you? So tell us a little bit about what kind of things you're doing, where people can get in touch with you, where they can get the book from, and any speaking engagements or anything else that you're involved in as well. Yeah, I'm doing, um, I'm in and out of schools all the time. Um, I've got, I've just done a few few conferences and things like that, keynotes and stuff. I'm toying with the idea of a TED Talk. We'll see if they want me or not. Um, But the book you can get from, um, at the moment, you can get it from Crown House Publishing uh, on their website. Uh, And then from the 30th of June, I think you can also then get it on Amazon as well. Um, so it shouldn't be too hard to, to, to find in in that respect. Um, but you can follow me on, you know, I, I spend too much time on social media, especially Twitter, trying to uh, try my best to, to get involved in, in different things and stuff. And that's at, at, at Graham Chatter L2 uh, on Twitter. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn and, and things along those lines. But um you know, it's just trying to get these these messages out and trying to get that that another way of think another way of looking at it and rethinking it, I think is is important. Absolutely. Well it's a great book, Graham, and it's a great, a great time as well, isn't it? Because lots of people are really struggling with behaviour, always interesting behaviour, but perhaps in new perceptions and new ways of doing things. And I've taken a lot from the book. So I appreciate you coming on again. Um, and I'm sure that uh, with half the questions still to go, we can do a, a third podcast at some point, can we? So. But yeah, really, really appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Graham. Thanks very much. Miller Snatter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Miller Snatter, just talking to teachers. Naylor's Natter the Book. Ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Naylor's Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022.